Um, well, just a brief introduction. I won't give my whole life story. Um, if you want that, Daniel Jatiam. Um, and I know several here. Um, I grew up here actually in New Hampshire. Um, born and raised, uh, born in Concord Hospital. Uh, grew up most of my life in Hopkinton, uh, attending Trinity Baptist Church right in Concord. I'm still there today in Trinity Christian School. Um, my parents, uh, my mom, and my my dad and stepmom, Bo's name and John T. Young, many of you know them. Um, and uh, anyways, uh, now I'm married. Uh, it's April. We've been married a little over 11 years. I have six children. So um, uh, many of you that we know never even met any of our children. So hopefully someday that will happen. Um, let's see. So since I've seen many of you, uh, we've lived in Guam. Uh, we've been in North Carolina, uh, Virginia, and now we're living in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Uh, it's about an hour and 15-ish minutes from here. Um, and presently, what I've been doing all those years is uh, I became an active duty Navy chaplain. And so I've been serving as a you know, Christian Navy chaplain endorsed by Associated Gospel Churches, which is a chaplain endorsing agency down in Greenville, South Carolina. And I've been on ship with Marines, and now I'm back um, with sailors at the shipyard of Portsmouth, which is actually Kittery, Maine, right. but Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, and that's so much to confuse and um, baffle all of us locals for years to come, I'm sure. So, um, but really thankful to be here. Uh, back when I was doing my internship at Trinity, um, Sandy took me out to the shipyard one day, and Kind of gave me a tour around, and, and I was like, oh, this would be neat, because at that point, I was a chaplain candidate, and I was like, oh, we need to someday come back and be a chaplain here, um, and lo and behold, here we are, so Lord works in mysterious ways. Um, well, this morning, we're going to be studying a very familiar passage of scripture, um, and uh, it's many of you. Many of you likely learned a song uh, based upon this passage as a child in Sunday school. And in the first part of our message, um, our passage is, is going to be the book of Jonah this morning. So uh, while I'm kind of sharing some introductory thoughts, you can start turning there if you'd like to get a head start. Um, but the word of the Lord comes to Jonah in the first part, which was a command for to cry against the city of Nineveh because of their wickedness. But Jonah responded to God with, First, intentional disobedience, because in verse 3, he chose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord instead of actually going to Nineveh, where God had told him to go. But it was also a strategic disobedience because he went down to Joppa, found a ship, paid the fare or the price of the ticket, and got on the ship to start going to Tarshish. But finally, it was a futile disobedience, which we're going to clearly see, because uh, in spite of Jonah's, um, uh, which we're going to clearly see, but in spite of Jonah's blatant disobedience um, being disrupted, God eventually exposing his sin, uh, we're also going to see something very important, and that is God's great mercy um, uh, and his willingness to relentlessly pursue rebels in love. So this truth, I hope and pray this morning, should motivate each one of us to want to serve God, want to live in obedience to him, and also to have mercy and compassion on all unbelievers around us, not depriving them 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was listening through Jonah several times on my way up here this morning and just impacted with Jonah was angry that God actually had mercy on these people. Um, and there's more that there's more there that we won't get into this morning because the Ninevites were they were terrible people. Um, but nevertheless, it's um, you know, hopefully this morning we'll see that we need to have compassion on all believers around us. And living in disobedience to God is not going to help our witness to the lost around us. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to read our text and, and keep moving forward. Father, thank you so much for the beautiful day you've given to us. Uh, thank you for this group of believers here who've gathered to carry out the, what you've called us to do in gathering believers and public reading and teaching of your word, fellowship of believers, uh, the breaking of bread, remembering Christ at the Lord's table, and not forsaking assembling ourselves together. I pray that you be with um, the church here, Village, uh, Village Chapel Baptist Church, that you would grow the believers here spiritually, that you strengthen them, you would add to their number and cause them to be a light uh, out here in the country, in this community, um, because there are people spread far apart out here who, who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that you would guide us now as we consider your word uh, that you've placed before us this morning, that uh, if there are some here in our midst who are living in willful disobedience to you, that they would seek to repent uh, and to turn back, serve you, do that thing that you have called them to do or command them to do. If they're being in our, in our midst this morning who have yet to repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ alone for salvation, I pray that today would be that day. I pray this in Jesus' name. All right, so some of you are got a head start and I did not, um, but we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to be reading from a New American Standard translation, so it's a little different than yours, but that's why. Um, if you have an ESV, it's going to be pretty close, um, but just so you know why my words aren't going to be exactly what you're seeing in your Bible. But our theme this morning is God's mercy is great, and he relentlessly pursues rebels. And if you like to take notes or you want a sermon title, uh, the title of the sermon is Disobedience Disrupted and sin exposed, um, but that that theme is going to be focused on God's mercy is great, and he relentlessly pursues rebels. Well, look down in verse 1 with me of chapter 1 of Jonah. The Bible says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against them, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and falling sound sleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, 
Let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Well, first of all, this morning, we see God's response to Jonah's disobedience in verse 4. And his first response, as if you look down in verse 4, which is really where the, 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 the start of our passage that we're going to focus on this morning starts. God's response by sending out or hurling a great wind. Now, if you have a King James Version, it says the Lord sent out. If you have ESV or NAS, it's says hurled or something to that effect. And really in Hebrew, it has this idea of that hurl. You know, it's, it's almost as if God has uh, these, these great storehouses of wind that he can just reach into and just cast wind upon the Mediterranean Sea. That's not what it's like, but that's kind of the imagery that's going on here. He's hurling this wind. The same word is used in 1 Samuel 18.11 when Saul hurled the spear at David trying to put into the wall. You know, since I did grow up here in New Hampshire, I uh, I enjoyed as a kid, and I, I, I'm sure I still would, um, hurling great stones into uh, lakes and ponds in the winter when there's just a thin layer of ice, right? You hurl those big stones, it breaks the ice with a big kerplunk or flop, whatever the sound is. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of force which are hurling those rocks into this um, into this into the ice. Also, once the, the the rains come right after some significant snow, and then it freezes right that thin layer of crust on top of the snow. We used to like to you know cut a big piece of ice off the top of the snow and then cast that into a parking lot or on top of the snow, and it just shatters into a million pieces. Um, something about kids and liking to break things. Um, but you had you had to hurl those. Things. It's a lot of force. And that's the imagery of what happened. God takes this wind and he hurls it on the sea. And after that wind, it caused a great storm. If you see verse 4, the Lord hurls the great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea. So the ship was about to break up. Listen to how the psalmist describes the power of God concerning the weather. Psalm 107 it says, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he spoke and raised up a stormy wind. And we know that God has the power to just speak and cause things to happen if you go back to Genesis 1, because that's how he created the universe. God said, let there be light, and there was light. You know, God said, let, you know, let the dry land appear, and it appeared, and it happened just like that. So this is the God that we're talking about. This is the God who is causing this great wind and this great storm on the sea of Medi the, Medi the Mediterranean Sea. Psalm 135, the psalmist says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. 
right? That's a that's that's that imagery again. You've got these storehouses of wind that he just brings forth and he just causes the weather to do whatever he wants in this world. So God hurls this wind, the wind causes a great storm, and then this great storm threatens the ship. Look at the end of verse 4. It says that the ship was about to break up, or so that the ship was like to be broken. And one scholar suggests this more literal, literal translation, the ship expected itself to crack up. Right? We know that ships don't have self-awareness and they're not living beings. Um, and I think it's pretty appropriate that a Navy chaplain is preaching on a passage having to do with sailors and ships and seas and things like that. That wasn't on purpose. That's just kind of how it happened. But um, ships don't have self-awareness, but it's this personification that if the ship did know it was alive, Right, it would expect itself to be cracked up or to break up at any moment. So that's really kind of just setting a stage of of, of the power and the the danger to the sailors and the ship. And why was this all happening in the first place? Well, it's all happening because one man was running from God. He was disobeying the clear commands of God. But in this, right, we're seeing that God's mercy is great because he's relentlessly pursuing a rebel, right? He could have just destroyed the ship. He could have just destroyed taking Jonah's life, taking the life of all the sailors. But yet he's trying to bring Jonah back to where he was supposed to be. So first of all, this morning, we have seen We've seen God's response to Jonah's disobedience. God responded to Jonah's disobedience by casting a storm, wind, by causing a storm. And now we see fear, panic, prayer, and then something we wouldn't expect, sleep. So we've got fear, panic, prayer, and sleep. So look down in verse 5. The Bible says, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and falling sound asleep. So the first part of the verse we can understand. We can understand that if you're out in a ship on the Mediterranean Sea and a storm such as you've never experienced before comes up, that there's going to be some fear and anxiety. And these were experienced mariners. They had seen storms before. So we know that this was a storm such as they had never experienced before. And this begins a definite theme of fear that's going to continue through this first chapter. Once a storm begins, there's this perpetual fear among the sailors as they're headed for Tarshish in the midst of this great storm caused by Yahweh. So how did they respond since they were afraid? Well, it says, every man cried to his God. And this phrase is revealing because it identifies that these were heathen sailors. They were serving, there were probably as many gods represented on the ship as sailors because they came from cultures and backgrounds of polytheism. So they served many gods. 
And they were afraid of this great storm, so they cried to their gods for help. One commentator said their imminent danger and conscious helplessness led them to cry for divine succor. Their actions, their action was according to the voice of nature. It is the course which men in sore straits everywhere incline to take, not to praise contrary to the most inmost tendencies of our nature. That's why you've probably heard the saying before, there's no atheist in thought force. Because even somebody who might claim he's an atheist in the foxhole, once the shooting and fighting starts, he's praying or crying out to somebody or something for help in that moment. Because not to pray is contrary to the inmost tendencies of our nature, as Curtis says. And I think the, the emphasis, again, needs to be placed on the fact that every man cried to his God, indicating the false uh, nature of these gods. Just like the scene in uh, the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. They, 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 the prophets were calling on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. So as these sailors were crying out to their gods, their false gods, nothing's happening. The winds are still raging. The waves are still crashing over the ship. The ship is about to break up because their gods were no gods at all. So, in addition to prayer, it says they threw the cargo. And this word threw is the same word that was used in the previous verse for hurl. So, again, great exertion of force. They're just casting stuff out. They're hurling it out into the water, trying to get everything out to lighten the load of the ship. Now, this was actually a common practice during powerful storms. In Acts 27, verses 18 through 19, Paul was on a ship being sent to Rome, and a storm came up. And it says, during their storm, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own so the polytheistic crew of sailors have responded to the storm first by praying to their false god and then by throwing the ship's cargo into the sea. Some say maybe that was like an offering to their god. They're trying to give some sort of a sacrifice. Hey, we'll give you all the tackle. Can you please calm the storms? However, Jonah, the one who was the cause of this great storm, had gone below decks found a nice secluded spot and fallen fast asleep. So next, we see that disobedient Jonah sleeps. Again, this is the last part of verse 5. It says, but Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and laying down and fallen fast asleep. So again, we have this to set the stage again. We have this Treacherous, chaotic, wet, and noisy scene with sailors frantically shoring up the ship's masts and sails, other sailors throwing the cargo overboard, and perhaps some even bailing water out of the ship through buckets, or maybe they didn't have buckets back then, right? Maybe they're clay pots. But that, that requires even more energy, like hurling water out with clay pots instead of just your, you know, as you classic bucket. But in all this, Jonah had managed to lay down the sides of the ship and he was sleeping. And the text said that he was fast or sound asleep. It was kind of a hypnotic kind of sleep that the Hebrew communicates. He was, he was just nothing to wake him up. Anybody like that in your family? Maybe your husband, maybe your wife, maybe some kids, grandkids, 
right? Maybe have a dog that, I don't know, stays through everything. But he could not be waking, waking up by anything. Well, I have an observation here. It's interesting that from the moment Jonah runs from the presence of the Lord, he's continually going in a direction. And can you think of what that direction is? That direction is down, right? He's continually going down. First, he goes down to Joppa to find a ship. Then he goes down into the ship, where he goes down and falls asleep. Eventually, he's going to get thrown down into the sea. We're not going to cover that part this morning. But in the sea, he's eventually going to get swallowed down by a fish, which will take him down under the sea. So Jonah has this perpetual downward spiral that his life is taking literally and spiritually, right? He's spiraling down spiritually away from God. You know, when we have intentionally disobeyed God, we too may find ourselves in similar situations where everything in our life seems to be going where? Seems to be going down, right? Maybe we're having relationship problems, financial problems, Having, um, I don't know, sleep problems, right? We can't, we can't go to sleep at night because we're we're plagued by conscience, right? Not living right towards God, being right towards other people in our lives. But through Jonah's disobedience, God was pursuing this rebel through judgment and mercy, displaying perfectly His love for this wayward prophet. And I would just encourage you that if you are running from God as his child this morning, he is not done with you yet. Though you may keep making choices which lead you down and greater trouble in this life, God is able to lift you up when you decide to follow his commands and his calling by repenting of sin and seeking his forgiveness. So what happens to Jonah? Does he keep sleeping? Well, no, he doesn't keep sleeping. He is eventually awakened. So next, disobedient Jonah is awakened. Verse 6, look at verse 6. It says, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Okay, so here we have the captain of the ship. We don't know how he found him. Maybe he was walking around the deck, seeing everybody running about. And then remember, oh yeah, there's this, there's this, there's this, uh, there's this guy on board that we're that paid a fare, we're taking him somewhere. His name is Jonah. Where did he go? And then he finds him sleeping, and he says, "How is it that you are sleeping?" And the great irony here is that the unbelieving captain, who's worshiping a false god, is used by God to call Jonah to pray to his god. And and I think it's it's important that we emphasize that. This captain isn't saying, Jonah, call on God, because Jonah's God to the captain is just another God. That's why he says, get up, call on your God, perhaps your God. Or if you have an ESV, I think it says, perhaps that God, right? We need some God to answer us, and maybe, maybe yours is the one. And that's the point that this captain is trying to get across to Jonah. But the... Again, it's, 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 it's ironic that the crew of unbelievers needed no problem to call on their false god, but Jonah, an Israelite prophet, needed the captain of the ship to wake him up and rouse him to call on the god of heaven, who was the very one who had caused the storm on the Mediterranean Sea. 
As Stuart puts it, the captain's main concern is to get the attention of some god somewhere. But little did he know that Jonah's god was Yahweh, the god of Israel, the very one and only one capable of commanding the winds and seas. So what was God doing here? What can we learn from this great storm and this pursuit of this rebel? Well, an important truth revealed about God that we mentioned already is that God was merciful. We see God's mercy. But second, we see God's love, and his love is evidenced in the fact that he pursued Jonah by disciplining him, using a great storm to bring judgment into his life to get his attention for the purpose of bringing about repentance and eventual obedience to deliver a message of judgment to the Ninevites. Hebrews 12 is a great passage. If you haven't studied it before, I recommend you do so. But in verse 6, it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, or disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. Um, the Greek word there, if, uh, in translated in some translations, chasteneth, in the King James, or discipline, means to punish for the purpose of improving behavior. If you raised children, or you ever were a teacher, or had Sunday school, right, and you you had to, to, to punish or do something because a child was not obeying and not being respectful, right, you were doing that for the purpose of improved behavior. Whether you sat the kid in the corner um, and made a face to the corner or whatever it was, deprived him of a privilege, you were seeking to improve that behavior. Well, God was punishing Jonah out of love with the purpose of seeing his behavior towards God and the Ninevites improve. Because at this point, Jonah was going away from Nineveh, and he was going away from where God wanted him. And God needed to go toward Nineveh to save the Ninevites, but also so that Jonah would be living in proper fellowship with God. Well, first of all this morning, we learned about God's response to Jonah's disobedience. Next, we explored the various responses of the sailors and Jonah manifested by fear, panic, prayer, and surprisingly sleep. But finally, we're going to see Jonah's sin exposed. Look down in verse 7. The Bible says, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, growing up as a kid, I always kind of wondered what this lot casting is. Casting lots, what are they casting? Are they throwing something in? Like, how did they know that, that it was Jonah? What did this, how did they make this? How did they discover that it was Jonah? Well, casting lots uh, was a way, as one commentator put it, to discover guilt. Uh, so, so, for example, it could have been like a couple of stones. And on one side of the stone, it was black, and on the other side, it was white. And they shake them up, throw them around, and if it falls down and it's white, that means yes. If it's black, it means no. Um, if it's, uh, you know, if you get like one white and one black, it means like try again. Uh, and then they keep going until, until, you know, they whittle it down like, oh, this guy got two whites. It's you. What did you do? So that's kind of the idea of lock casting. 
Um, probably one of the most popular verses that includes the concept of lot casting is found in Proverbs. You may be familiar with Proverbs 16.33, which says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And there's several other biblical examples where lot casting was used, such as Joshua 7, where Achan was chosen out of Israel for his sin. They were casting lots there. The choosing of Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot with the other 11 apostles in Acts 1. Right? It says, so they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So that's kind of a background of lots. So they cast the lots, and who was picked? Well, it was Jonah. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, verse 7 tells us. So here, you see that Jonah's sin was exposed. He was found out. As Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. In Hebrews 4, 13, but all things are open and lay bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Who is the him with whom we have to do? Well, that's God. And God is the one who knows everything. He sees all the secrets. He sees everything that we're coming. Uh, you know. The lightness of the dark is just like light to God. There's, there's nothing hidden from his sight. But even so, like Jonah, we may try to hide our sinful disobedience to God. And for a time, may be successful. Jonah did make it to Joppa. He did make it into the ship. He did make it a certain distance in the Mediterranean Sea on their voyage to Joppa before the wind and the storm came up. We don't know how long that was. The Bible doesn't tell us. We can speculate. But it doesn't tell us how long he was successful in his disobedience. However, in time, God will cause our sin to be found out. So kind of boil this discussion down a little quicker. So going back to the lot casting, is this something we should continue to do today? Should we you know, get some dice or maybe a couple of rocks with white on one side and black on the other. And be like, Lord, is it your will for me to buy this new Lamborghini? Oh. Uh, no. no. No, I was saying no. That is not God's will for us to cast lots, to make decisions. But I think it is important to note that even in the lot casting of that culture, God used that to accomplish his good purposes and to expose Jonah's sin in this situation. So don't go, don't go to your car with your wife later and have an argument about where you're going to eat lunch and be like, all right, pull up the lot stones and start <laughs> casting lots. Um, all right. Uh, so finally, uh, as we're working toward, um, as we keep moving along here, they cast lots, the lot fall on Jonah, what happens next? Well, what happens next is lots of questions. The sailors have lots of questions for Jonah. And it's actually likely that they asked many more questions, but we're only given a few here. And if you look at verse 8, they start saying things like, okay, tell us, who's it, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? Where, what is your country? And from what people are you? All these questions... They asked him once they realized that he was the one 
directly connected to the cause of the greatest good. Essentially, their motivation behind each of these questions was linked to superstitions and beliefs because they were kind of onto something, but they were also off, right? They thought that if you, if you made your God unhappy, then he was going to do something to you. So they didn't know which God Jonah served, served but they're like, hey, whatever God you served, what did you do to him? What, what, what did you mess up? I mean, you, you've done something pretty bad here. Where are you from? What people are you from? What's your group? Um, what is going on here? So they ask all these questions, and what is Jonah's response? Well, he's honest, right? We can, we can give him credit that he's honest, and he's not lying. He's not trying to disassociate himself, but he says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah told him forthright that he feared Yahweh, God of heaven. By referring to Yahweh as the God of heaven, Israelites were able to answer any polytheistic or syncretistic foreigner, that's somebody who blends more than one religion um, together, to the question, Yahweh, what is he the God? For unbelievers serve many gods. So there was like the God of the sun. The God of the moon, God of the stars. There was a God who controlled the weather. There was a God who controlled maybe your financial success or lack thereof. So Yahweh, what is he the God? But Jonah said, I serve Yahweh, God of heaven, who made the heavens, um, who made the sea and the dry land. Right? This designation, God of heaven, communicated to the sailors that Jonah's God was somehow superior to all other so-called gods. And you know what? Jonah surely must have felt like a hypocrite, wouldn't you think, when he said this to the sailors, for he knew full well by his actions he was not living a life that exemplified fear of the Lord. Not, not fear as in I'm afraid, but the reverential awe and respect for one's God. Right? You say you you fear, um, you know, you fear your your dad or your mom as a as a child. I respect, I respect my parents, but then you live in a way that totally disrespects them in every single way. People aren't going to believe that you actually respect that person. So um, you wonder if Jonah felt like a hypocrite at this moment. Uh, one commentator said, although Jonah declares, "I fear the Lord." There is a blatant discrepancy between his creed and his actions. Jesus would quote the prophet Isaiah many years later to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 15, saying, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. So here we have Jonah, prophet of the Lord, prophet of Israel, speaking that he was honoring God with his lips, but his heart to this point was far from submitting to God's commanding because he was running from God. He didn't want to bring this message of repentance to the Ninevites. Well, by this point in Jonah's answering the sailors, he's been observing a great storm, and he knows that he's in trouble. And he might even be wondering if the ship and crew could still be saved. 
So what's going on with the sailors at this point? Well, their, their, their fears heightened even more. They feared with a great fear. Look at verse, um, look at verse 10. It says, then the men became extremely frightened. They were already afraid. They were already fearing for their lives. Now they were extremely frightened. Because this Jonah, this one who says he fears Yahweh, the God of heaven, has chosen their ship as the escape vehicle. That's like, they're like, what are you doing? What have you done? What? Uh, let's see. Where was it again? Um, oh, yeah, further on in verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? In modern terminology, you might say, how could you? In other words, they were not very pleased that he had chosen their ship to try and run away from the God of heaven. And for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord God because he had told them. So how about you, Christian? Are you running from God this morning? Are you living in direct disobedience to what you know God wants you to do as his child this morning? Are you experiencing the discipline of God? Now, life might be difficult for you right now. That may not be as a result of God's discipline in his chastening. It could just be because life is hard. And unfortunately, we live in this world cursed by sin and difficulties do arise. Some of our difficulties are through persecution. If you look around at America, it's not quite what it used to be 20, 30 years ago. And the challenges that we run into are growing, and the persecutions are growing, um, even just within our own families. <clears throat> but consider your own life and your position before God and how you're living. If you have difficulties in your life, can you connect any of those to your own disobedience, to what you know God wants you to do? Are even unbelievers in your life asking you things like, how could you do this? If you are willfully living in disobedience to what you know God wants you to do or has commanded <laughs> you to do in his word, the bad news is that that difficulty you might be experiencing could be a result of God's hand of discipline in your life. But the good news is God is merciful and loving and doesn't want you to keep going down that path and will bring things into your life to get your attention so that you will recognize your sin, repent from it, and turn back to him and seek his forgiveness. And then go do that thing that he's called you to do. So maybe you're like, okay, Nathaniel, yes, you know what? That is me this morning. So is there an example of someone I have to look to who did obey God? I mean, Jonah's a pretty poor example of somebody who just blatantly went the other way. Who can I look to? Well, the short answer is Jesus. See, when Jonah was sleeping through the storm, he was running from the will of God and had not yet submitted to cry against the Ninevites. Jesus, on the other hand, when he was in a, on the sea, I think it was the Sea of Galilee once with his disciples, and there was a great storm, he knew that he was wholly submitted to his father's will. When Jonah was awoken, his sin was eventually found out and the storm raged on. When Jesus was awoken, he rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. 
and he actually calmed the seas and the storm. Jesus perfectly submitted to the will of God the Father and fulfilled God's plan of redemption by coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. He went exactly where God wanted him to go and did exactly what God had appointed him to do and brought his message of salvation to the people that didn't deserve it. Jonah thought the Ninevites didn't deserve God's salvation, so he took it upon his, himself to deprive the Ninevites of the gospel and, and go away from it. But Jesus came to perfectly fulfill the will of his Father so that now whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with true faith and repentance will be saved and have eternal life. So if you will obey God's clear commands in the Bible, and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will avoid experiencing the discipline of God. You may not avoid all difficulties in life, but you will at least know that those difficulties are not because of your sinful disobedience to God. And instead, you will glorify Him and successfully point others to Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer this morning, if you persist in running from God and remain spiritually indifferent to your disobedience to God and His Word, you will only succeed in bringing grief and possibly disaster into your life. So I would encourage you to repent of known sin, ask God's forgiveness, and seek to live a life in obedience to God. Unlike Jonah, whose disobedience to God harmed his testimony as a prophet of the Lord God of heaven, Show by your obedience to God that you truly do love and fear Him. So unbelievers around you will be motivated to want to serve the God that you're serving. But they'll be motivated to want to repent of sin as well and love and serve Jesus Christ. But as I conclude the sermon for this morning, perhaps your eternal uh, destiny is still in question. Perhaps your entire life is being lived in disobedience to God because you are still dead in your sins. Right? If you're still dead in your sins and you're not, you haven't been born again into the family of God, then of course you're going to continue to do only those things that you want to do, not giving attention to God's commands in your life. And if that is you this morning, I would encourage you do not leave this church today before finding myself. Or another Christian here who would love to help you know how you can know for sure that if you die today, you go to heaven by repenting of your sin and trusting alone in Jesus Christ for salvation. Because then you will truly be brought into right relationship with God and have eternal life. Please join me as I pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for. Um, being willing to pursue us, even in our, our rebel state, before we are saved, pursue us and draw us to yourself. And give us the ability to believe by faith that Jesus alone is our only hope. Lord, I thank you that you allowed people into our lives, that you allowed us to be placed in the churches and ministries and scenarios where we've heard the gospel, where we've convicted of our sins and repented and placed our faith in Christ. I thank you that you've saved us. 
So for those of us who are Christians, if there are any in our midst this morning who are willfully going the opposite direction of what they know you want them to do, if there are some who are persisting in disobedience to your word, whatever that might be, I pray that you would cause them to be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit to repent and to seek your forgiveness. And then fulfill whatever it is you have called them to do, whether it's the leading of your Holy Spirit and uh, in people and circumstances around them, or it's an explicit command in Scripture that they've been willfully neglecting to obey. I thank you that in spite of Jonah, and we know the rest of the story, I thank you that in spite of him, you did bring him to the point where he ended up doing your will, and you saved thousands of people, thousands of people in Nineveh, repented and believed in you as the one true God. So I pray that through our lives today that we would not get discouraged even when we do sin, that we seek, that we confess that, that we seek your forgiveness, and seek to um, model appropriately Christian life before unbelievers and not deprive the unbelievers around us from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.